We're going to get started with the uh, short remaining time that we have left uh, today. I'm just going to go ahead and jump, uh, jump into an introduction on this and get ready. Um, it's been a few weeks since we've been in the Gospel of, of John, uh, as I've been gone a couple of uh, weekends here. And I just want to remind you that uh, the last thing that we went through was John chapter 17, which was the close of John's, uh, Jesus' highly, high priestly prayer. And uh, the close of that prayer, uh, one of the main things we talked about was that Jesus desired for the church to be a church of unity, that the church would be unified. Do you recall that? And what that did, it brought up a lot of questions for us, because if the Holy Spirit is here to bring unity, why do we look around and see disunity, right? If the Holy Spirit is, is, is here to bring us together, why are we not together? It brings up the question of what are we to agree on and what's okay to disagree on? And I went to a couple of passages that are just foundational, just by way of reminder to you. We went to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. You can turn it if you want, but just reminds you that's the passage that talks about what, what fellowship does light have with darkness? What fellowship does Christ have with Belial? You have all these sort of these rhetorical questions, which the answer obviously is, is none. There's no fellowship that light has with darkness, and Christ and Belial don't have fellowship. And the point is, is that there is a natural separation from unbelievers and believers. That, that we, we start there. There's a natural one that takes place, that there, there isn't a fellowship that takes place there. And that is even from um, believers and unbelievers who masquerade as believers. And how do you know the difference? Um, the Holy Spirit is supposed to bring unity. What is the unity of the Spirit? And so we went to Ephesians chapter Chapter 4, which is foundational. Paul says there's one body. There's one body. There's one church. There's one body of Christ, and it is the invisible body. It's the invisible church. It's not the church that we can look around and see. It's the church that God knows those who are his, right? The invisible church. There's one spirit. There's the Holy Spirit. And if you remember, we referenced 1 John chapter 4, where you have the spirit test, where you can test between the spirit of error and the spirit of truth. And we'll be going there again today, actually. There's one spirit. There's one hope, which is the promise of eternal life. And Jesus, in our uh, prayer uh, in chapter 17 of John, verse 3, described eternal life as a relationship, as a relationship, that we're not just living eternally for the sake of living eternally. Even unbelievers will live eternally, but in hell. It's living eternally in relationship. That's the hope that we have, the hope of eternal life. There's one Lord. He's Jesus Christ. There's one who is the head of the body, the head of the church. And there's one faith. There's one faith. And I'm going to stop with that one today because that is the difficult thing. There's one faith, yet we live in a world today where, where people are trying to say, yes, there is. There is one faith. All of these other faiths are all part of one faith. Have you heard that? All these things, we all believe the same thing. We're all part of one faith. After all, the Bible says one faith. It's true. It does say there's one faith. What is the one faith? That's the question. And so I thought it might be helpful rather than jumping back into the gospel of John, because I only have two weeks and then we'll be taking another week break because we'll have a guest speaker. Pastor Brad Hain will be here from Grace Chapel. He'll be speaking on, I believe that's the 22nd. Um, I'd hate to start 
John only have to start, stop again. So instead, I thought we'd just do a couple week study um, on one that would just sort of help us and encourage us in the area of what do we stand up for when it comes to faith? What is the one faith? How do we, how do we stand up for that? Um, and there's no better book to go to than Jude. Jude. We're going to go to Jude's little letter here. Two weeks ago, I was at the Truth for Youth conference. That's why I was not here on Sunday. One of the speakers was Jay Smith. He's a Christian uh, polemicist, which is sort of the, the, the opposite of one who defends the faith. He attacks other faiths, and he's one of the few people on the planet openly attacking the religion of Islam. And he's doing this because, as I brought up in the sermon in John 17, many so-called Christians have bought into the lie that their faith is the same faith as ours. Their God, Allah, is the same as ours. That's why you had the Pope and the Grand Iman coming together and saying, we, we can unite together under one cause, and they can't. Anyway, Jay Smith went through just a series of things, the very simple things to say very easily how we, we can prove he is not the same God. Allah is a monad. He's one-dimensional. He is not triune like the God of the Bible is. Allah is distant and impersonal. He has no name. In fact, Allah is a title, the God. Our God has a name, Yahweh, and he's personal. Allah never came to earth. He's distant, but our God did. And Allah doesn't have a son. Ours does. We don't share the same faith. We don't share the same God. And there's one faith, and it's a faith that we must contend for, and that's what Jude challenges us to fight for. Jude is an interesting little book. Here you have 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, all written by the same John who wrote the Gospel of John, and then you have Revelation, who John also wrote. And sandwiched in between there, you have this little epistle of Jude. You go, how did Jude get in there, right? How did, how did it squeeze in between all of these letters by John, and why is it there? Well, obviously, the Holy Spirit inspired the writing of Scripture, and I believe God oversaw the, the coming together of Scripture as well. Jude is there for a particular purpose. Because as we go into the eternity and the revealing of Christ, that's where revelation is, right? It's the revelation of Jesus Christ to John, visions about the future, visions about uh, Jesus Christ and the end of all things. Jude challenges the church to contend against those who were once of the faith and left the faith. That's called apostasy, apostasy. Those who are uh, under that category are called apostates. You've heard that before. I've used that word before. Um, they are those who have, um, in some way or another, connected themselves to Christianity. Use the word of Christianity today. What comes up under that banner? Roman Catholic Church comes up under that banner. Mormonism comes under that banner. Jehovah Witness comes under that banner. Are those all Christians? Is that the same faith? And Jude says, no, it isn't. This is the one faith and we must fight for it. And so I thought it would be good to take a couple of weeks to sort of just continue that thought that we had a few weeks ago and take a look at this wonderful little epistle. I'm sure I could take many, many weeks. I don't have that many weeks to give. We'll give a few to it here though. So let's look at it. If you found the, the, the epistle of Jude, it's right before Revelation, as I said. And look at verse 1. It just says, Jude, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Jude is just short for Judas. 
It's Judas in the Greek. It's Judah in the Hebrew. And so it's Judas. And there are many Judases in the New Testament. We know of a few, right? Judas Iscariot, obviously, is in the New Testament. But there's another disciple. That's Judas, son of James. He's called the Judas not Iscariot in there. That's right. His name is mentioned as not Iscariot. But he's also known as Thaddeus and Labius. That's another disciple. And there's a couple others in the Acts that you'll see, Barsabbas and one of Damascus. And none of those are this Judas because this Judas is mentioned as the brother of James. Who is James then? Who is James? Well, James is the brother of Jesus, really the half-brother because he's the son of Mary and Joseph, where Jesus is just the son of Mary. And so James is a brother of Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 13, you don't have to turn there. I don't have the verse. I'll just read it uh, for you. It says this, Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? So there his name is mentioned. He's one of the brothers. He's the brother of James. And they were both unbelievers. They didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They didn't believe that their brother was going around speaking truth. In fact, you might remember this from John chapter 7. We covered this in verse 3. It says this, His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you were doing. Jesus was always doing these works in Galilee, and they said, this is the backwoods here, man. Go into the main stage in Judea. Do the works there. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. They wanted him to go on the big stage in Judea, go to Jerusalem and make a fool of himself, right? Because they didn't believe in him. But after Jesus' resurrection, they became convinced of his deity. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, it says, These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. That's the beginning of the church. It was the disciples, the other, others that had come to the faith, and his brothers. And as we start this letter, it might be good to note that this has many similarities to 2 Peter. Um, in fact, there's only 25 verses in this um, little epistle, and 19 of them have some kind of parallel to 2 Peter. And this has brought scholars to sort of debate about, well, which one was using the other one as a source, right? Was Peter using Jude as a source? Was Jude using Peter as a source? Well, I think I think Peter was written first, 2 Peter was written first, just for a couple of reasons, not that important, but he predicts, well, it is kind of important, he predicts in 2 Peter, he predicts that false teachers will come. They will come in the future, and not just false teachers, but they'll come and they'll infiltrate the church. They'll come into the church and they will teach destructive heresies from within the church. Jude writes to say, they're here. Peter says they're coming. Jude says, no, they're already here. In fact, if you look at verses 17 and 18 of Jude, it says this, but you beloved, remember the words which were spoken by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. Two things. Jude obviously is not uh, the Judas, uh, not Iscariot apostle because he 
uh, separates himself, designates himself separately from the apostles. He says, they taught you these things. But also, they taught you that the mockers would come in the last time. If you take a quick little glance, left-hand turn to 2 Peter, it's really close to here. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. There's a very similar phrase, very similar writing there. Peter says, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. And so you really just have Jude sort of um, referencing 2 Peter here because he's quoting that prediction and noting its fulfillment, that it has happened. Um, and he uses that word mockers, mockers, impiketes, impiketes. It's a word that's only used in the New Testament, guess which two places, here and 2 Peter 3.3. 3. So it's clear here that Jude is, is pulling off of what, second, what Peter has written in his second epistle, and he's trying to show that this has actually happened. And according to tradition, Peter was martyred by, by Nero, remember Emperor Nero. And Nero died in AD 68. So 2 Peter had to be written close to then, 67, 68. So if Jude sort of borrowed that as a source, you're looking at 68 to 70, somewhere in there. It had to be written before the end of the destruction of Jerusalem. So that's kind of the time frame we're talking about, that this would have been written by Jude. And he obviously shortens his name here, Jude, because who would really want to start this saying Judas? But luckily, he goes on to say, a bondservant of Jesus. A bondservant of Jesus Christ. That bondservant is that word doulos, it's slave. And all the, many of the apostles use that phrase to describe themselves. Paul, Paul did in Romans and in Galatians. You read those, you see he says, Paul, the bondservant of Christ. Um, he uses that. Um, so do many of the uh, other apostles. You have uh, Paul using it in Philippians 1, 1 for himself and Timothy. He says, Paul and Timothy were both bondservants of Jesus Christ. Peter uses it in 2 Peter. Um, Simon Peter, a bondservant, he says, and James, the brother, says a bondservant of God. So Jude, Jude went from being an unbeliever in John 7 to being a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And what's the audience? Look at the audience to who he is writing. Look at verse 1. To those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Now, he is writing to the church here. I mean, these are words that we've seen throughout our study of John. These are believers, probably more predominantly Jewish believers, and you'll see later on in our study why that's probably uh, the case. And I could spend a lot of time on these three words, but because we've mentioned them and covered them in, in John, I'll just use a couple of verses in John to support what he is talking about, that he's talking to the church. Those who are called is kletos. They've been called to the faith. John 5, 21, Jesus said, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. In John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. That's the calling, the drawing to him. And then he says, they're sanctified. Some translations, and maybe the one you have before you, says beloved instead. The most reliable say Beloved. Either way, sanctified, believers are being sanctified, aren't we? Jesus prayed, sanctify them by your truth. What is truth? Your word. Your word is truth. Beloved is agape. 
It's a form of agape. They're, they're loved by God. That's believers, right? And then also preserved, he says, in Jesus Christ. They're kept for him. The word is tereo. And Jesus certainly said that in John chapter 10, verses 27 to 28. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. If you're a believer today, if you're part of the true church of God, those who are called and sanctified or beloved, those who are preserved, Jude is writing this to those people um, to warn them that there's danger. There's danger in their midst. And then he gives them this blessing, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. That's exactly what Paul talks about in Ephesians, right? He says that we have been blessed by God with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Those are spiritual blessings, mercy, peace, and love. Again, agape is used there. And like I said, I could spend a lot of time on those few verses, but I really want to get to the meat of this as I only have a couple of weeks to cover this. And perhaps down the road, we'll, we'll really dig into Jude later on. But for today, I just want to kind of whet your appetite here for what Jude is talking about here. What he's really warning um, the church about is the danger of, a, of apostates, that those who would cloak themselves in Christianity, that they, they would be the ones that would declare themselves to be of the same faith, yet teach something quite different. And we see that today. It's prevalent, isn't it? And Jude is very diligent to write to them. And look at verse 3. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Very diligently kind of connotes a hastening speed, but it also could mean that he was hurried sort of in vain to write. If you can see this, he was going to write one thing, and he changed his mind and wrote about something else. This was going to be an uplifting letter. It was going to be a, a letter that would be about the shared blessings of salvation, right? An upbeat letter. But instead, he found it necessary to write to them, to exhort them. He found it necessary to do so, to go in a different direction. I, I just, I had to. I was going to write about this, but I, I found it necessary to go this direction. Something compelled him to do that to exhort them to contend earnestly for the faith, he says, to contend. You've heard that word before. Contend is epagonizomai, epagonizomai. And it is a struggle. It is a fight. It is a, a battle. It takes work, in other words, right? It takes work. We're to contend vigorously for the faith. Paul tells a young pastor, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 1.18, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. He wants Timothy to wage warfare. Wage warfare how? This is how. He wants him to stand for the truth, to contend for faith. That's why later in chapter 6, he says, fight the good fight of faith. You've got to fight for it. Got to fight the good fight of faith. That's what we're here to contend for. The Christian faith, the gospel, God's objective truth. That's being tainted today. But that's what the church was founded on. You look back at Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. 
and fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. But it was the doctrine. It was the foundation. It was the teaching. It was the truth that they were founded on. Paul writing in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Don't lose it. Don't discard it. Don't go a different direction. And then 1 Timothy 6, verse 20, Oh, Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. That's what we're up against today. And Jude says, I, I need you to contend for this faith. It was once delivered for all, to all the saints. That's the entire, um, entire word of God. It's been delivered once. There's not a future revelation. There's not a a newer version. This hasn't been corrupted. This is what was given to us, and this is what we go off of. So why do we contend? This is where we really get to the meat of this. Why does he want us to do this? Look at verse 4. For certain men have crept in unnoticed. Boy, he uses his words carefully here. You only see those words used in the New Testament here. The only way to really find out what he, he, he means by this is to look outside the Bible. This word isn't used anywhere else. Guess how it's used? It's used for those that disguise themselves to sneak in. That's the idea. There are people who have crept in. They haven't been noticed. In fact, you just they're certain men. They're not named here. He's not calling who they are out. He just says they've crept in and no one noticed, and they're here. They're here. Peter said there will be false teachers among you, but now they've crept in. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But there were also false prophets among the people, meaning the the Old Testament Israelites, right? They had false prophets. Even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. That's what Peter says about it. And Judah's saying, yeah, it's happened. Uh, they're here. They've actually crept in. They come, they've come in the door. And that is our world today. They've taken up positions in seminaries. They're pastors. They're at pulpits. There's writing books. They're on blogs. They're on the radio. Why I get so worried when people go, I'm going to go home and look that up on the internet. I go, don't do that. There's just so many apostates. People out there masquerading. They're false teachers. They're guiding people into untruth, particularly those that are immature in the faith and easily maybe duped into false teaching. You have to be so careful today. I think it's what Paul meant when he said people will turn to the many teachers. I used to wonder, how would you turn to many teachers? That's how they do it today. You go on the internet, there's many people willing to teach you if you're willing to listen. You have to be careful. And Jesus warned about this in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. What is Jesus saying there? We're the sheep, right? He said they're coming to you, but they look like sheep. They look like sheep, but they're really wolves. They wanted to devour you. And Paul was aware of this. If you turn to Acts 20 really briefly, in Acts chapter 20, Paul was warning the Ephesian elders really along the same lines um, as this, probably taken to heart the same words of Jesus. No doubt Jesus would have shared the same thing to him. 
Beware of false prophets. They're coming to you in sheep's clothing because Paul uses a lot of the same verbiage here. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, he's talking to these elders of the church. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, right? Shepherd the church of God. It's God's church, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So they're going to come in among you. But also, look at verse 30, also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Wow, that's frightening. It might be easy to see the attack coming from the outside. We were praying about that very thing in the prayer meeting. Oh, it's, it's easy to see the world allying itself from the outside. What about the attacks on the inside? What about those that claim to be Christians? It's devastating. By far, the most damage done to the church are those that claim to be Christians, those that claim to be part of the church. And by this, when I say church, I mean the visible church, the, the ones that you look in, right? Not the invisible. That's where the damage has been done. And looking at Jude here, Jude says these men have, have crept in unnoticed. So this has happened in Jude's day. In Jude's day. We have, have it happen today, right? We had, the Roman Catholic Church didn't exist then, right? You didn't have these branches, these, these sects that, that exist today then. Well, you know, it's much worse today. It's much worse. They've crept in. They're all over the place, and you have to be so careful. So what Jude is doing here, he's, he's going to give a warning, really, to those men, those apostates, uh, those people who are of the faith or masquerading as the faith and departing from the faith. Look what he says, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. The warning is that God, a long time ago, prepared condemnation, prepared judgment against those who would declare to be of the faith and seek to lead others astray. Condemnation. You go back to Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah talked about it in chapter 8, verse 20, to the law and to the testimony if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. They will pass through it hard-pressed and hungry, and it shall happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward. Then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. These are those who don't speak according to the word, he says. They don't speak according to the word. And why is that? Because there's no light in them. What did Jesus say about that? Right? Men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil, he says. Because their deeds were evil. The apostates in the church know full well what they are doing. They are leading others astray. And what Jude is saying, the, um, their, their condemnation has been set. It's a warning. You continue on that road, there is nothing but damnation ahead. It's severe. This is God's church. We just read it, right? He redeemed with his own blood. He wants to protect it, and he will, and he will. And notice how he characterizes these men. They are a couple of things here. Ungodly men, 
Remember our test um, in 1 John 4 I mentioned earlier? Let's apply the test here because this is how, a good practical way, okay? They're ungodly men. What is an ungodly man? It's a man without God, right? He's ungodly. He doesn't have God. It is a testament to his character. So look at 1 John chapter 4. Look at 1 John chapter 4. It's just a small left-hand turn in your Bible there. In 1 John chapter 4, you have the three tests here, the three tests. I've mentioned them a couple times, but if you missed that, let's um, look at it really quickly here. The first test is in verses 2 and 3. I'd circle these in in your Bible if I were you. Test number one is in verses 2 and 3. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Okay, how do we know the Spirit of God? Here it is. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. So the first one is very simple. That person or that group must confess a divine Christ, right? They must confess a divine Christ. If they don't preach a divine Christ, they've failed the test. They're not authentic. They're false teachers or they're apostates. That's test one. Test two comes in verses four and five. Look at it. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. So here's the distinction, right? Their distinction is is between their life. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So Christians have the living God in them. And the living God in them produces fruit. We saw this in John, right? You're going to live a new life. And you must profess that and possess that kind of divine life. But the people that don't, they're of the world. They speak like the world and everyone hears them. You see that? So the test too is that they've got to possess a divine life. They've got to be living. They've got to be living according to what they say, right? That's test two. And then test three is in verse six. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and spirit of error. So there's the very simple thing. We're of God. Now, this is John speaking. He's an apostle. We are of God. He who knows God hears us, okay? So he is talking about the truth, right? The testimony of the disciples, the apostles. Those who know God listen to us. They listen to the word. They obey the word. But those that are not of God don't hear us, won't listen to us, won't have anything to do with the truth, won't have anything to do with the word. So test three is, do they profess a divine law? Okay, those are the three tests. Do they confess a divine Christ, possess a divine life, profess a divine law? So let's go back to our creepy men that have crept in to the church here and look at how they are described in verse four again. They've crept in and they are ungodly men. This has to do with their character, their character. So what test then have they failed here? Test two, right? They don't possess the divine life here. They're, they don't possess the divine life. They have an ungodly character. They're living as if the Holy Spirit doesn't live in them at all. That's the ungodly men. Look at what else he describes them as. They turn the grace of our God into lewdness. They turn the grace of our God into lewdness. What is the grace of our God? How many people today 
try to twist the scriptures and say, oh, because God's grace is so abundant, I can just do whatever I want, right? Now, certainly they start living uh, that way. It's certainly seen in their life, but what is it they're not really making the foundation on? It's the word. They've twisted God's word, right? And so here, these people have failed test three because they have no commitment to divine truth. They're really just living for themselves. They've turned the grace of God into, a, into an opportunity to live any way they choose. That's, they failed test three. And then the last one is probably pretty simple. These men also deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's test one, isn't it? Right? You must, you must, you must confess the divine Christ. So these people have failed all three tests. Now, let me just remind you, you, you'd only need to fail one of those. <laughs> you really do. Many people will up here, get in front of the pulpit and say, oh, we believe in the risen Savior. We believe in Christ. Maybe until you get a little further down and really understand their theology, you find out they don't. But they might put, you know, profess that from the pulpit. But then how's their character, right? Examine that. What do they believe about God's truth? Examine that. Here, these men have lost all of the tests here. They failed all of them. They're certainly not of the Lord. They are apostates. They're enemy. They are, they are wolves that have crept in as sheep. And I think that liberal theology is not an intellect thing. I don't think it's men that have become smarter. I don't think it's immorality. I think it all boils down to passion, just like we see it here. We, we want what we want. Turn the grace of God into lewdness. I just want to live any way I choose and deny any spiritual accountability. That's, that's what's happening in the church. And so the church is being swayed, doesn't know where to land on any of these issues that we see today. What do we do? Hopefully we'll clear some of those things up over the coming weeks. And I don't have a ton of time and I've already taken way longer than I planned on this bit. So maybe we'll just cover the first part here today. So what Jude is going to do here, he's going to give us three examples, three illustrations um, here about uh, apostates. And there are three Old Testament examples. I'll just look at them in verse 5. We're going to see that they are apostate Israelites or, or Jews given to us from the Old Testament. In verse 6, apostate angels. And then in verse 7, we'll see apostate Gentiles. We'll have to cover those two next week, but let's look at verse 5. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward, afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. This is very, very interesting. This is interesting. So what Jude is giving us is some past judgments against apostates, against apostates. And this section really closely parallels 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 3 to 10. He gives three Old Testament examples as well. He gives God's judgment on angels. He gives God's judgment on unbelievers through the flood and Sodom and Gomorrah. So Jude uses two of those here. He just sort of replaces the Noah example here with um, Israelites being, coming out of uh, Egypt. All right. So our first example comes from a very well-known Exodus, right? Probably one of the most, if not the most, famous story in the Bible. In fact, let's turn to it in Exodus chapter 12, because first I want to begin with, <laughs> I don't want to go straight to God's judgment, because I want to show that God... In, in redeeming the nation of Israel out of Egypt is a story of that, redemption. God saved those people, didn't he? 
He is saving them. He's bringing them out of slavery. He's going to take them to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land with blessing. Okay? And so with the Passover coming, he wants to sort of symbolize and he wants to memorialize that down the, down the line. He wants them to remember what he did and why he did it. So in Exodus chapter 12, look at verses 11 to 14. This is just sort of God laying out the Passover, how he plans to institute it, and what he wants them to do with it. Exodus chapter 12, verse 11. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord Throughout your generations, you shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. And then skip ahead to verses 25 to 27. He gives us a little bit more here. It will come to pass when you come to the land, which the Lord will give you, just as he promised, that you shall keep this service. So keep keep the memorial of the Passover. And it shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? That you shall say, It is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and worshiped, right? This was to to be something that they would remember that, that it was God's graciousness, his redemption. He chose them and freed them, okay? I want that to be absolutely solid in our minds before we get to judgment because what happens is, is that the people do nothing but complain and fight against God the whole way. He finally gets them to the promised land. He sends spies into the land, and they come out and they say, oh yeah, there are giants there. We're scared. We look like grasshoppers. We don't want to go. Now, when I read these stories, my my mind is just absolutely boggled. I, I would just think that after traveling through the midst of water on dry land with walls of water on each side, and turning around and seeing God engulf an entire army with that same bit of water, I might believe there's a God. But God says he destroys them because of unbelief. So can you know there's a God and yet be unbelieving? You can. We are not talking about knowledge of God. Because Paul says all men know God and are without excuse. We can know there's a God. You do know there's a God. I don't care what people tell you. They know there's a God. They just choose not to believe. And the sad story goes on. We should look at it in Numbers here. Numbers chapter 14. This is what happens to these people. They have it all. They have it all. They have God's presence with them, his power, his provision. He's been providing for them all these years. And yet they just won't believe. And so their doom is sealed. They come back. They're refusing to enter the promised land. And look what he says here, chapter 14, the book of Numbers, verse 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, how long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complain against me? 
I have heard the complaints which the children of Israel make against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you've spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness. All of you who were numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above, except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. But your little ones, whom you said would be victims, I will bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and bear the brunt of your infidelity until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, forty days, for each day you shall bear your guilt one year, namely forty years." And you shall know my rejection. I, the Lord, have spoken this. I will surely do so to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me in this wilderness. They shall be consumed, and there they shall die. Now the men of Moses, whom Moses sent to spot the land, who returned and made all the congregation complain against him by bringing a bad report of the land, those very men who brought the evil report about the land died by the plague before the Lord. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, remained alive and the men who went to spy out the land. That's a, that's a tragic story, folks. God who did all the miracles of the uh, plagues, God who did all the miracles of provision and um, bringing them safely through, in the end says they didn't believe. They didn't believe. And so he, he destroyed them. In Hebrews chapter 3, and I just want to close today with this, Hebrews chapter 3. You can turn there. The writer makes reference. He makes reference to this. And it's just a warning. It's just a warning for us, I think. In Hebrews chapter 3, beginning of verse 7, he says this. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. What's the rebellion? Well, he goes on. In the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me and tried me and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of what? unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you'll hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who have, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Unbelief. They knew without a shadow of a doubt there was a God. That's clear. Absolutely. They just chose not to trust him. They just chose not to believe in him in that way. 
And that is what takes place with apostates. Many would say, well, you know, can't you just lose your salvation? God just takes that away. I don't believe so. I think that the Spirit is given to us as a guarantee, as a deposit. He is the confidence I have that I have been saved. No one can snatch them out of my hand. I will be raised up at the last day. I can just go through too many of those things. You can say, well, how, do I, how does apostasy happen? I wish I had more time to go into that, but there's so many things. You can look at the parable of the sowers. Persecution brings that about. Lustfulness brings that about, right? Difficulty in life brings that about. Hardness of heart brings that about. And ultimately, it all comes down to unbelief. Just choosing to harden the heart and not trust in him. And so people have come in and, and liked what they heard maybe initially, but then leave it. And John says they were never of us to begin with. Apostasy is rampant. It's so important for us to know what the faith is. And Jude is just going to sort of point out the characteristics of apostates. And then he's going to close with, here's how you, here's how you stand for that faith. And I hope it'll be an encouraging word for you. This is really just an intro and getting us started, but hopefully it just whet your appetite for what Jude has for us and what the Lord wants to teach us. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your word and so for this tiny little epistle wedged in here right before Revelation that encourages us to contend for the faith, to fight for truth, to not be complacent, Lord. How true it is is we just have to open our eyes and look around the world today. We can see that many, many, many who claim to be Christians are indeed not. I, I don't, don't mind saying that. It's just clear. It's clear by what they teach. It's clear by how they live. They're just, they're not. And your word prophesied that. Paul talks about the great apostasy, the great, the apostasy, the turning away, the falling away from the faith. And we see it happening even today. Oh Lord, I just pray that we would just not be lazy. That we would, not be arrogant either, that we would remain fast, holding fast to your word. Your word is truth. It is the truth. It is the truth that sanctifies us into the truth that saves us. We must hold on to that. We must fight for it. And Lord, I know the pressures of the world and the fear of man drives people to, to not stand for it, Lord, but we, we must I, I have nothing profitable to say from this pulpit without your word in front of me. This is it. You have the words of life. Where else should I go? Oh, Lord, just please, just work in our hearts, Lord. Help us to see the importance of your word, how important it is that we stand for truth, and Lord, we might glorify you and be the church that you want us to be, the pillar and buttress of the truth. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>